Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. Casey Woods, welcome to the show, darling. Glad to be here. Finally made it happen. I know. It's been a minute. For those who don't know, um, Casey Woods is kind of a big deal when it comes to awareness in veteran suicide. And it's it's a topic that is um, starting to be widely spoken about, but not spoken about, I think, in the way that it should. I think there needs to be a seriousness put on it and serious. There needs to be better eyes on this. There needs to be a better way to look at this because clearly the way we're doing it isn't working. So somebody that is changing that voice who is who is taking veteran suicide to a new level so that others understand that it does not have to be the option is you, Miss Casey Woods. And I'm really excited yeah. because people might have heard you before on some other shows, but I don't know that they're going to get the same version on this show because you and I have slowly become friends, my dear. Yes, absolutely. I think it's because I like to surround myself with people who are doing positive things in the world. And you are, are truly bringing awareness to veterans and gun issues in, in a way that I've never heard. So I'm going to let you kind of go off and tell everyone exactly who you are and the words that you would like to use. Because to me, I think you're a badass that is helping save lives. Thank you. Love that intro. Appreciate that. Um, you know, mine... My organization uh, is called Forge. Uh, we're the only national nonprofit that is specifically focused on working from within the firearms community on transformative, non-political, really important word, initiatives to end gun suicide and gun homicide. And the centerpiece of our gun suicide prevention work is a military and veteran suicide prevention initiative called the Overwatch Project and that awesome t-shirt you're wearing and the one I'm wearing, but you can't see as well, um, is our call to action. It's just fucking ask. It's basically the friends don't let friends drive drunk model, except instead of talking about alcohol and cars, we're talking about firearms and suicide. And so we are basically taking a public health uh, solution, which is something that's known in clinical circles as lethal means safety. It basically says that if uh, you can put time and distance between someone in crisis and what they might use to harm themselves, especially the deadliest suicide methods, i.e. firearms, you can save their life. Um, but the problem is lethal means safety kind of has a branding problem. It sounds awful. Mm -hmm. And often the people who are delivering that message are not 
people who, um, you know, it's clinicians, uh, which are really important public health messengers, but there's a lot of people who don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about their firearms with a doctor. And so what we do is we take that conversation and we put it in a peer environment. So you got a buddy, you're worried about them. While you're there helping them, you should have a conversation about their firearms. Can you secure them? Can you hold on to them? Can you disassemble them? Can you do anything that would give them a minute to think? Um, and the reason why that's important is that suicidal crises are often impulsive. Uh, a lot of veterans that we've talked to who've been there say that, um, you know, it's like the fuck it moment. You know, my job, uh, I, I lost my job. My wife left me. Um, everything sucks. Fuck it. And it's like that boom moment where things can be bad for a while, but that actual decision is often a very quick decision. Half of people who attempt and survive say they thought about it for 10 minutes or less. 10 minutes or less. And so how do you create a, a pause there where people have some time to think before that rock bottom moment and a firearm in their hand? Um, and so that's what we do. Uh, I come from a storytelling background. I used to be a journalist. And um, I think that, you know, storytelling has been a primal part of our our history, our culture forever. And I believe in the power of stories and good narrative to actually change things. And so we bring that approach to what we do. Uh, we have a documentary filmmaker who works with us. And so if you go on our website, which is overwatchproject.org, there are short films on there about veterans who are alive today because somebody did this for them. Um, the most important voices that veterans need to hear from, as you know, and we've talked about this, Kelsey, um, is other veterans. And so how do we show success in the ways that people are solving these problems themselves? And, um, and then we have a lot of really cool materials and things on there. Uh, we do bring a sense of irreverence to this. We think that part of the problem uh, with some public health messaging is it sounds really wonky and it's mm -hmm. hard to access. You know, it's like if you can't use it, and you don't understand it, it doesn't feel like it sounds like you, then people are less likely to do it. And so that's why the just fucking ask piece is really important. That actually came. Uh, we worked with hundreds of veterans to develop the Overwatch project. And um, we uh, we interviewed a ton of veterans who had done this, who had gone in and had this conversation that can be kind of awkward, kind of weird. Like, am I going to piss this person off? By asking this question, is it going to make them think about it if I ask it? Um, and what we did was we interviewed those veterans to see, you know, how did you go there? How did you have that conversation? What worked? And veteran after veteran said, I just fucking asked, what's up with your guns? And, uh, and in the end, uh, we always thought, well, we would have like a vanilla version of the initiative for like more official partners. And then we would have a gorilla version of it. I actually own justfuckingass.com uh, because I thought we were going to have this real DL, um, really uh, edgy version of it. But when we were road testing the Overwatch project, when we were doing suicide prevention trainings with post-traumatic stress support groups and student veteran groups and things like that. Every time we would tell that just fucking ass story, people would laugh and lean forward and it would change the room. And we finally realized like, if this is what is working for our audience. It doesn't really matter who else it works for. And it has turned out to be the best decision we ever made. So we've never looked back. Uh, it's, it, it's what makes us memorable. So 
It's it's really special because I when I got to meet you in person, um, I was really lucky because some of my guests I don't actually get to meet in person for years after or whatever, um, but for whatever the reasoning this year, obviously being COVID, but you and I got to meet at SHOT Show. And it's so funny because you are you are the same person now as you are on, you know, when you do press, you're, you're serious about what you're doing, but you, you bring levity to it. And I think that's something that we need more of. It's so often we deal with situations that are so dark and so heavy, so traumatic, and we don't really, we don't really take pause and understand the damage of, of what that, whatever that event has done to a person. And if you can make someone take a second to breathe and laugh and, 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 it gives their, their nervous system a moment of just, ha ha ha. Like it, laughter is such an amazing tool. And if we use it properly in this community, it can bring such light to these super dark, heavy, heavy topics. Because like you said, people don't always want to have this conversation. And most mm-hmm. of the time, the people that we're having this conversation with or having to have this conversation with are these grown men who have all been told that you're weak if you cry, that you're weak if you you act like something's wrong. If you are not able to be honest about something, there's no wonder that we're losing the amount of people that we're losing. So yes. the the light you guys bring to it is is really spectacular in my opinion. How did you get into Forge? And because I know personally that you were a journalist, I know your background, but how did you get into Forge? What did that look like? And what was the the real catalyst moment that brought this all to fruition for you? Um. I mean, I come from a big gun owning family from Arkansas, <laughs> good Southern stock. And, <laughs> um, and so I grew up in that world and, and so I was very comfortable with it. Uh, then went, became a journalist at, at, in different places. I was in South America for several years as a freelancer. Um, and then I uh, came back and I was a, a, a local news reporter at the Miami Herald. Um, I can't picture that at all. <laughs> you can't, is that you serious? You can't picture it at all? I can picture you in like South America in jungle gear with like a ruck on, but I cannot picture you in a studio being like, hello, everyone. Hello. I wasn't on TV. I was a print reporter. So I actually, I've had to get over my phobia of being the center of attention. I mean, as a print journalist, you're like trying to stay out of the story. Um, and uh, love that job. It was a great job because you got to ask people for their stories for a living. I mean, it was like being a professional student. And it was always this miracle to me because people would just tell you all these things. Um, and I got to, I was like the local cops reporter. I would be spending all my time at the police station and hanging out in bars late at night, getting stories about investigations and um, crime scenes. And, you know, that that was the fun part. The dark part was just the death, you know, the constant monotony of violence in a big city and interviewing um, the mothers of murdered kids and um, somebody killed himself in our lobby. And I was one of the first reporters to walk up to the door. So it's just this constant churn of, of, you know, violence and loss. And I just hit a point um, where I was like, there's got to be a better way. You know, we're losing all these people to gun deaths in this country every year. Um, And so when I left the Herald, um, you know, freelanced for a while, uh, had this kind of aha moment where it was like, this is, you know, you kind of get called to a cause. It's not, um, I don't necessarily know that's a choice. You know, I went to grad school for journalism and I had this 
amazing professor who taught a book writing class. And he has this saying, he's like, you don't choose your book topic, your book topic chooses you. And um, I, I very much felt that way about this issue. Um, just felt like, I think in life, you know, there's kind of this X, Y axis. Uh, I mean, I believe in living a life, life of purpose. I had the change the world gene really young um, when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say, I'm, I'm going to change the world. I don't know how yet, but I'm going to change the world. Like I was that kid, uh, branded myself as the family freak uh, very early on. And, um, um, you know, I just always had that urge. And I, I do believe that journalism, I, I, I know that journalism has become really complicated and controversial in ways that I never could have imagined uh, when I was in that career. And that's like a whole other conversation about how that's happened. Um, but it, it was a public service to me, you know, it's like truth to power, you know, covering issues that people might know, not know about in their community so that they can take action on them. It was a very purpose driven career for me. Um, and then I do believe that going into the actual part of trying to solve the problems that we saw as journalists is actually a very natural path um, because you just see it and you see it and you see it and you're like, eventually you're like, I can either choose to talk about this or I can choose to do something about it. And that was really the moment that I came to. Um, and then initially uh, did a lot of work with law enforcement, but while that was happening, it was really looking at like this whole s situation of gun deaths in America and two thirds of gun deaths are suicides. Uh, That's insane, that, that number is astronomical. And you don't hear it very often. You hear all about gang violence and gun violence and the stuff that I used to write about and mass shootings and, um, and all that stuff is really important. It's heartbreaking. And I know it like from a front row seat, how heartbreaking that is. But, but the, when you look at the numbers, two thirds of gun deaths are gun owners killing themselves. Why do you think, sorry, I have to, I have to do this. Why yeah. do you think that is? Why do you think that those are the numbers? Like why, and why are they underreported? Why are we so willing to report other things like gang violence with guns, but we're seem to be very reluctant in reporting self-administered suicide with a weapon that you own? Well, I think that there's, there is some um, concern that's real about highlighting suicide in the media that, there is a contagious effect in some cases, like there are actually best practices in journalism about how you cover suicides because really? yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, and it's complicated because it's a real fine line because you want to be telling people about the problem, but at the same time, um, there is a, there have been proven studies about how like store, you know, suicides that happen in a community, it makes it more likely for other suicides to happen in the community. And so you can you can have that effect. So I think I do want to acknowledge the complexities of covering this. But the thing about gun suicide is gun owners are not more likely to be depressed or to have suicidal thoughts than any other person in America. It's just that when they attempt, because firearms are so lethal, those suicide attempts almost always end in death. And so not like hangings and, and overdoses and, and you know, yeah, if you attempt with medication, you are 98% likely to live. If you attempt with firearms, you are 90 to 95% likely to die. And so it's, it's this, it's this 
paradox uh, because, you know, the number one reason people own firearms that we own firearms is personal protection. And so it's something you have to keep you safe. And, and so, and yet if somebody in your home is in crisis or struggling or depressed or substance abuse, you know, substance abuse is often involved in suicide attempts um, or substances period, because it, it loosens the kind of makes you more impulsive. Alcohol makes you more impulsive. And so that bad moment, like when you're, you're kind of in an altered state can lead to a suicide attempt. It's more likely to. And so, um, you know, I just don't think that this conversation has gotten so complicated because of the political conversation. And I've made it, I've told you, I don't get into politics. We are very non-political. I don't talk about politics with any, about anything. Um, but the conversation about firearms and suicide has been very politicized. And so it's gotten to the point where we can't even talk about these solutions that actually work, that are community-based, that are peer-based, that are family-based, um, without people worrying that this is some stealth gun grab. And that's what we do is like, we're all like, I tell people at the end of every one of our trainings, uh, there is a slide that I put up that says, this is an act of free will. This is a choice that you make in private with people who care about you and nobody else has to be involved. And so that's really what we emphasize. These are personal solutions that will help us bring those suicide numbers down dramatically if we all work together in the veteran and military community and beyond that in the firearms community. Do you think that we're doing people a disservice by not talking about it in the media and things like that? I understand there is a protocol and a reasoning and there is, we, we do know that there are social contagions that do affect people and, and communities on a large basis. That's been statistically proven across the board, whether that is through sexuality, all the way to gun violence and suicide attempts. It is, it's just the way of the world, all the way to mental health disorders like anorexia. There's a reason you don't put anorexic on a ward together. It is a social contagion as much as it is a mental disorder or someone mm -hmm. that is going through an illness. So I can, I can respect that. And I do want you to hear me when I say that, that being said, the fact that we are not discussing it openly and honestly with the epidemic that it is on a larger global scale on things like the mass media, which by the way, they don't do great right now anyway. So to trust them, I wouldn't trust them with this topic currently. I feel like it would get turned around on its head. But I'm serious. We why why aren't why aren't we having a deeper conversation about this on a larger scale? Because clearly, doing it again the way we are doing it is not working. So if it's two thirds of the people that commit suicide are using it by gun, that should be the topic of conversation across the board. Now I know it's it leans political, but it's not in America. Do you think that conversation doesn't happen because it is in your? Um, constitution, the ability to own those. So there might be people that are unwilling to even in their mindset, whether they're unwell, unwell or not, you know, that's just, I can have those in my home. I can have guns. That's my right. See for us up here, it's not. So that's why the conversation's a little different, right? We, we can get guns, but it's not like written in. It's not the same. It's just not the same. So I'm, I do wonder if, if, if we, the way we're doing it on a public forum is really effective, it's really working, it's really actually doing what it needs to do. Or if we are almost, we're not perpetuating, but we're not also doing anything about it. So, I mean, there has to be some ownership on the mass public here, in my opinion, in the way that we discuss these things. I think that, um, 
absolutely we need to be talking about more. But what I would advocate for is how we talk about it. I think that we need to be doing what is called there's there's this whole movement called solutions journalism because journalism tends to cover problems. You know, there used to be a saying like in, in newspaper lexicon, the old school news newsrooms, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, so it's sort of like covering problems without covering the solutions. And so I think that, um, you know, there is a whole movement. There's actually a whole worldwide movement of journalists who are committing to covering solutions journalism. And on this, I think this is a primary example of, you know, covering like the massive amount of gun suicides in America without covering it as like there are solutions to this. That's where it would change things. If they're constantly, instead of just covering the epidemic, covering the solutions, like like hitting it, hitting it, hitting it day after day after day, the way that we hit like, you know, gang violence and, and things like that. I think then we would start to see how that public awareness shifts into public solutions. So that would be my answer to that. Well, I mean, I've, I've never heard of solution journalism, but it sounds like I've got hope <laughs> because I'm right. That's, I mean, optimism, if we're constantly talking about negative things, it's, mm -hmm. it's no wonder that the media makes people feel unwell because mm -hmm. if, if it's, it's just constantly feeding you this bad thing happened, this bad thing happened. And you start to feel like your world is really small and mm -hmm. really, really dangerous, really, really quickly. And so it's interesting to see someone that comes from journalism go into awareness in, in this space. It's really fascinating because you have a really different perspective um, than maybe another journalist would if they didn't understand guns or didn't understand the right to own them or never been exposed to them or never used them. And we've mm -hmm. seen that with, with certain newspapers mm -hmm. talking about topics or people that you know they have had zero exposure to at any point in time. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much hearsay as to their true feelings about that person or that event or, or whatever that be. Um, for, for you, it's just kind of crazy to me because you're not just a journalist. You don't just, you know, run forge. You don't just go and do these talks on these things as you take it really personally. And, and you're part of a law, a larger conversation um, in the way that you do things. You, you don't just go on podcasts and, and, and talk about this, but you have a whole other back end to you that I think is important to acknowledge. And number one, you're a mother, which yeah. is like of a lot of kids. <laughs> I have three, um, which, which, which you have one. Uh, and I, I totally, the jump from one to three was, was very quick. I had twins. Um, I got a bonus baby. Uh, I love that. So I did. It was a total shock. It was an absolute total shock. I, I nobody in my family had ever had twins was not even on the table for me. And uh, at six weeks, they were like, you don't have one baby. You have two. So and now it's glorious, uh, rowdy, um, just out of control um, all the time in my house. I wake up to a level of noise that is uh, sometimes just violent. Um, so, you know, you just got to roll with it. But they are my inspiration every day. You know, I, I you see things differently. Um, well, not you. I don't want to generalize. Uh, for me, you know, you see the world. I saw the world differently when I have kids and it is um, really complicated because we're, con we're constantly fed all this negativity and um, 
we're just trying to manage it, right? Like you got to manage, like for people who are empathetic and who care, um, there's just so much of it, so many problems that need to be solved. And so what I love to do when my kids come to me and, you know, like sort of why does this happen, mom? And, um, you know, we don't always know why, but what I tell them is you can do what I did, which was I saw a problem and I got up one day and I was like, I can either decide to be part of the, 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 the problem or the solution, you know, the, the, that shift from, you know, um, talking about it and doing something about it. That is what, for me, I, when I look at all these problems, I, if I'm not taking action, I feel helpless. And, um, and I think that also you got to find, you know, back to that, your cause choosing you, there's kind of an, what I view as like an X, Y axis of, you know, if you want to live a life of purpose, like where is your, the best use of your gifts and experiences, where can you have the most impact and that, that, you know, you can have a lot of different things that you want to take action on, but where is your specific kind of combination of gifts and experiences? Um, and then there's like what actually keeps you happy and makes you happy. And because if you can't be really creative, then you can't bring your best self to these purpose-driven careers and, you know, get real. Like it takes a lot to, to just push and push and push and be relentless because that's what it's going to take to solve these problems. And so I really feel like, and I feel blessed to be kind of at the right spot on that X, Y axis for me, where I feel like I come from this background that allows me to understand a lot of different perspectives. Um, big city, small town, you know, lived all over, um, come up, grew up in this, you know, gun universe, uh, which was really positive. And, um, and then also the storytelling, it's, um, you know, and I use that, some people might be listening and be like, what does she even mean by that? Um, what I mean is that, you know, there's this set saying that, you know, people don't remember what you said, they remember the way you made them feel. And um, when we do our trainings, it's not this PowerPoint, you know, a bit kind of death by PowerPoint. It's we bring in those stories, those narratives, so that people walk out feeling like this is possible, this is doable, this is something I can walk out of here and do. I mean, I know people... We, there's a, a film up on our website under this collaborations tab where it was folks who were in a training of ours and literally at the end of the training, they're turning to each other, making plans about what would happen if they were ever in trouble and they were concerned about what each other might do. And so that's the kind of action. It's like, we've got to make this accessible so that people can actually use it. It doesn't matter if it works, if people aren't using it. Right. But it's, I love that. I'm sorry, I'm taking notes while you're chatting here because you're saying so many really incredible things about being accountable and, and, and purpose-driven. And I think that's something that I don't know if we just don't teach anymore about purpose-driven um, work that, that we could be doing in the world because maybe it's not going to get us to be these huge billionaires. Like, I think we overlook the importance of 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 selfless work. And, and that is so important when I hear you talking about the way you raise your kids and just having those conversations with them and then bringing that 
through to business. And I think you weren't wrong when you were, I don't think you were generalizing when you have kids, you start to see things very differently. The perspective, the perspective changes drastically and the way that you look at the world changes drastically. It's a whole different thing and it's super hard to explain, but it makes me want to have those conversations. It makes me want to sit there and be able to explain to him, Hey, this is a problem. It's okay. If you, if you see it, we can talk about it. It's an open forum to have this conversation. And so I'm just kind of sketch, you know, sketching down. So I apologize, but the, the purpose-driven work and the way that you make people think and change when you're doing these training exercises is really, um, is, is really a huge thing to acknowledge because often you go to these, you go to these leadership things, or you go to these group things. And it's not that it's death by PowerPoint, but it's dry. And there's something missing. It's there's something that doesn't click with people. It doesn't resonate and it doesn't hold true. And it doesn't ring true in, um, in an event that this actually happens to them. They may have had the training, they may have had the knowledge, but it's about how you make them feel. And if they can't remember what you taught them because you, they were bored out of their mind, then they're not going to be able to react properly in that time. So I want to, I know that I would like to go and attend one of yours because I feel like it's necessary for me to see what you're talking about, to not only give me tools, but to give our listeners tools so that I am able to articulate exactly what you do effectively and why it's so important. But you, you've done other things besides this. And I keep kind of going back to it because I know you want to talk about Overwatch project, but I also <laughs> yeah. think you, you, you have a really high credibility in this space you are a leader. Uh, you are a true leader. You're one that actually says and does what they say they're going to do in a really important way. Um, and I want you to tell everyone a little bit about your background outside of journalism, because I think, you know, just chatting with you in the, in the Uber ride over learning those little things about you, I, it, it gave, it gave you something different. I, I hear what you say and I see what you say a little differently. And I think it's because you have a leadership quality. I want you to talk about that. So I'm forcing you to talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. Big questions. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that you and I talked about that was a real game changer for me, especially in terms of developing what your, you know, your terminology, kind of the leadership ability. When I was early on in this process um, of making the shift from journalism to this new universe. Um, and it was weird. You know, I was a journalist, like that was my identity. And, um, you know, it took me about two years after I started the nonprofit to stop saying like, well, people would ask you what you do. And I'm like, I'm a journalist, but I have a nonprofit. Like it took me a while, uh, you know, um, to, to make that identity shift. And one big piece of that for me was I was really lucky early on and that a one of our um, a family foundation that funds us, um, they nominated me for this fellowship called Ashoka. And Ashoka um, is uh, this, it's an organization. If anybody listening to this who may or may not have, I had not heard this term when I got nominated for Ashoka. It's called social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurs. It's people who are coming at social challenges, entrenched problems with an entrepreneurial mindset, um, like a business mindset or an innovation mindset. 
And um, I had no idea what Ashoka was really when I uh, when somebody nominated me, which I'm kind of glad now because it, it was it is it's it's a kind of a big deal in the social innovation space. And I had no idea. And so I was super chill <laughs> through the whole process. This really kind of intensive process where they do these really deep interviews like they asked me things that nobody had ever asked me, not even my parents, like why you're why they kind of take you into your sort of your whole history of why what got you to the point where you decided to launch whatever your venture is. And, um, you know, it really made me think at first of all, if I was like social entrepreneur, oh, that's what this is. You know, it was sort of like, wow, it's got a name. I'd kind of been out there on my own doing my own thing and had no idea there was this whole universe of other people who were tackling problems in the same way. And um, we're not in the same way, but in wildly different and innovative ways. And got the fellowship. I was a 2016 fellow. And um, there is this community. We, we were all inducted together. There was a group of us in 2016 and we came together for the induction. And it was just, it was a seminal moment in my life where, um, you know, you and I think, I think one of the things that we talked about is um, intensity. Like I'm, I'm kind of a relentless person. <laughs> I am super passionate and intense is kind of a word that some people are like, oh, like they think there has this negative connotation. And I have finally just embraced it um, where um, I'm like all out. And I, love I know what- I love it so much. <laughs> I love it so much. I love what I do. And you saw me like, it like stage five shot show at one of these events where I'm just like working, you know, I've got, you were on baby. I was on baby. I was like going hard because it's, um, yeah, I just love what I do. I absolutely like, I I wake up every day and you know, the ups and downs and all that said, I'm not saying it's easy every day, but I just love it and, um, feel blessed to do something that I love this much. So I'm always grateful for it. And so I'm like really intense. And I'm constantly thinking about what we're going to do next and this that program. And like, you know, I've got 50 million plans. And then like, the, the, and, and then like, you, you don't realize you look back six months later at kind of what our outline was. It's like, oh, we did all that. And now we're onto these other huge, ginormous uh, plans that are completely like leveled up. So it requires a certain relentlessness. And I will not lie. And I will, you know, I will say that, that it's too much for some people. You know, it is too much for some people, but being around that community of really purpose-driven people, um, it was like, oh, I cannot be too intense for these folks. Like we are good. And you would go and we would sit there and we'd be at a restaurant and there would be, you know, a table cover covered in, you know, a paper, you know, tablecloth. I think we were in an Indian restaurant and pretty soon, like there were at least three separate conversations where people had pens out and were mapping out like different pieces of new projects and how do you tackle this problem? And I mean, it, there is no level of intensity that's too high for that community. And um, that for me was a real uh, turning point. It's like, okay, you know, I found my people, we're um, tackling these things together. And so it, and it really shifted me into kind of thinking, you know, there's um, there's this idea in kind of, tackling problems and social change. And I know I'm using all this kind of social entrepreneurship wonky, you know, terminology that I hope people um, don't think is pretentious, but um, 
I it, doubt they it, think it's pretentious coming okay, from you. It's, it's, You're good. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to use all this weird term. I'm trying to explain like this whole universe that I, I'm, I feel lucky to be part of. But there's this idea of direct impact, like what you or the people you are directly associated with can accomplish. And then there's this idea of indirect impact and how, you know, how you empower other people to go out there and lead on the issue that you're working on um, so that you, you help more people. And for us, our goal is huge. It is transformational norm change on suicide prevention. We want to do for firearms and suicide, what Friends Don't and Friends Are Drunk did for drunk driving, which is now 70% of Americans say they have intervened to stop somebody from driving under the influence. And drunk driving deaths have dropped by half. And so, you know, you're looking at like, that was a individual actions by millions of people over years that has saved tens of thousands of lives. And that is what we can achieve in suicide prevention if all of us step in and we do what we did with like with friends don't friends drive drunk. And so um so there's only so much you can do as a single organization. And so our philosophy as an organization has always been you know, what's the smallest organization we can build and have the impact that we want so that we don't become just about having a big organization. Like I want to, we, how do we put this tool in people's hands so they can go out and carry that message into their communities. And so that's why we're so big on training. Like how do we teach people to fish? And, um, and so that in terms of kind of leadership philosophy, you know, I was already there. It was sort of, kind of an unformed idea but that really being part of that community really made this shift a lot faster into like this is you know how do you go big and go fast um as quickly as possible because these problems can't wait you know we see these numbers on veterans and military suicide and suicide in general they're just not moving and they're getting worse yeah i mean that active duty suicide went up uh 15% in 2020. Um, I don't know. I don't think we have the 2021 numbers yet. Um, and so we're just seeing this happen and happen and happen. And I just, I do not accept that. I don't accept that storyline that we are okay with this. And so I'm always out there like, what are you going to do? You know, that's at the end of our trainings. Um, one thing we do often is we have people write down, like, what are three things you're going to do in the next three months? and um to to solve this problem who are you going to talk to where are you going to take this how are you going to carry this message forward because you have the power to change this problem right there's and the way that you're doing it is obviously resonating it's how do we do it on a grander scale and and have people really just that be the reaction when they hear something, you know, just that muscle memory, like, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to do this. Well, I, I agree with you. And that's why, you know, like our call to action, just fucking ask is brilliant, like break through that noise. Um, you know, I know people, um, that t-shirt you're wearing that I am wearing too, but you can't see, um, is literally save people's lives. Like I know people who, when you're wearing a just fucking ass t-shirt, you're going to get the question, just fucking ask what mm-hmm. it's a wonderful conversation starter. And I tell anybody who's got one of our t-shirts, you got to be prepared to answer that question because people are going to ask you. And I know people 
who number one have written me and said, you know, I was sitting there, I was worried about somebody and I was wondering what to do. And I was afraid to go there. And then this visual of you on that stage with that just fucking ass t-shirt came into my mind. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And guess what? The person was suicidal. Or um, I know someone who, you know, he kind of wears it as a tool. He works with veterans, um, not all of them who he knows. And he's like, I, when I see somebody in particular, he told me one story, you know, I was worried about him, didn't know who he was. And I just sat down with him, didn't bring anything up, just, just sat there for a minute. And of course, in a few minutes in the guy's like, you know, just fucking ask what, you know, and then there was this whole conversation about firearms and suicide. And he got the, the veteran to secure his firearms differently because he was actually struggling. And so, you know, I, I do believe in cutting through the noise. So I, I agree with you. Like we don't, um, um, you know, we try to be thoughtful about our language. We don't want to contribute to the problem that we're trying to prevent. Um, and, you know, I, I do kind of the, the die by suicide, but I also don't correct people around me. Like this is a personal choice right. that I make, um, in my language about how I talk about it. Um, but words do matter. Like we, we make it really clear, um, you know, when we kind of present like how, you know, people can do what we're suggesting they do that there's a whole range of options of ways that you can approach this problem. It's not a one size fits all um, solution, you know, just, you know, in terms of anybody's out there think asking, you know, might be listening right now, like, what are we suggesting people do? You know, number one, you just fucking ask, you go there, you talk to someone, if you're worried about them, the biggest mistake is not asking. And the worst case scenario is that person is going to say, no, I'm fine. Or, maybe fine, maybe not. But you know, I, I, you can have a whole conversation about whether you press on that. But the one thing you have done is you just normalized asking. And so while they might be okay, the next person they encounter might not be. And you just normalized asking and making it normal to go there and have a conversation about something that could be uncomfortable. Right. And then, you know, so the next step in the process is like, okay, you identify, well, maybe there is a concern here. What do you do? Well, you know, firearms are sensitive. People have them because they want to protect themselves and their families. And so, you know, we tell people like if you, um, you know, the best case scenario if somebody is actively suicidal is potentially potentially get the firearms out of the home temporarily. If you can hold on to them, secure them. There are wonderful um, outfits. There's an organization called Hold My Guns that is identified. you know, retailers around the country that were hold on to firearms for folks temporarily. Oh, wow. Where is this? Where are they from? This is a country, that's a national organization. And it's like, I, I've, I've been name dropping them in all my trainings uh, for years. And so I really feel like I need to connect with them. Yeah. Um, I totally <laughs> need to connect with them. I, and they were at SHOT Show and I meant to hook up with them, but you know, it was a blitz. But um, their thing is they work with retailers and they've kind of created these maps of, places where if you need to get the gun out of the house and you don't know what to do, you don't have somebody who can hold on to it, or maybe you live in a state that has kind of complicated gun laws. Um, you, they, these are places that offer temporary storage. You don't have to say you're suicidal to get it, but you know, you could be going out of town. You could have somebody come into your house who you're worried about. Um, and so, you know, there's solutions out there, right? That's one step. If you could. That's brilliant, by the way. It is brilliant. And I I think that they do great work. Um, Two, 
say, you know, there's a lot of people who I know who are like, they're just not comfortable not having a firearm in the home. So what do you do if somebody still wants to have a firearm in the home, but they're, you're worried about um, them potentially being at risk? You know, you can disassemble the firearm. You can pop the firing pin out. You can put a cable lock on it, even if they have access to it, you know, they're going to be thinking about why they put the cable lock on it, you know, while they're unlocking it. Um, we have veterans who we work with who actually have um, kind of really, they've developed this whole process of these steps that they take if they are, if they haven't slept or, um, you know, something is just not right where one of them, you know, he sleeps with a, a firearm under his pillow. It's like, well, if he wakes up and he's not feeling so great, maybe he didn't sleep for a couple of days. Um, he'll move the firearm to his bedside table. If uh, that doesn't seem like a big deal it is. for him, that's a psychological step. He's recognizing, okay, I might not be okay right now. This is something I need to think about. I need to be aware of what I'm doing. So if things keep getting worse, he'll move the firearm downstairs to the safe, even if not locking it, like he leaves it in the safe, he still has access to it. Um, but you know, things keep getting worse. His wife will take the keys to the safe. And then if things really get bad, you know, he's got a buddy who will come and take them. And so he's created this course of action. You know, y'all in the military always have a plan for everything. It's basically planning. You know, how do you make a plan if that rock bottom moment comes? How are you backing it out of the crisis moment um, to uh, have a plan for you and, and to keep you safe? Um, we also have a, a, an initiative that we're going to be pushing bigger this year which is called the advance guard. And the idea is, is that you would go have a proactive conversation with someone, a buddy, about what would happen if either of you ever got into a dark place. And it may never happen. You yourself may not be worried about uh, whether you are going to be suicidal or not, but maybe you're worried about your buddy. So right. can you go have a conversation with that buddy? And instead of saying, hey, I want to help you, say, will you help me? If I was ever in crisis, would you uh, hold on to my firearms for me? And, and your friend's going to say, yeah, of course, you know, I'm going to help you. I got your back. And then, and then you can say, and then you say, would you, want, would you want me to be that plan for you? You know, and so it allows in this, this kind of, in, you can ask for help and then offer help. So it's a, a reciprocal exchange so that people feel like this is a team. It's not like, oh my God, if you, you know, we, we have a social media piece up that was a quote from uh, um, in our conversation guide from a veteran who we work with, who's done this a lot. And he said, uh, um, he's like, yeah, you know, my number one piece of advice would be don't open with, you seem really fucked up. Wall up immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know people who've done it. It's worked. So it's not like it's not an absolute. I actually know right. people who have said far more outrageous things as an opener. I still go there, but he, you know, don't open with that. So if you can kind of soften it a little bit and be like, Hey, let's work together. That can be a good thing. Yeah. So I yeah. like that. It gives, it gives accountability. It gives a, a buddy check system. And those are, those are things that like I've talked to you about the buddy checks are so important. They're so underutilized and, and giving people a reason to, to have a buddy check is mm -hmm. often all you need just to spark a conversation. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be more difficult than that. Oh, I love that. I'm really excited about that, that, that advance guard deal. That's really cool. This hold my gun, this, this program. Yeah. You really need to be in touch with them. I think everybody does because that's a, 
that's such a unique way of doing it. Because if you think about it, if you are the one person in your group, friend group or family group, who's the vet, which is normally my situation, nobody is going to be like, I'll take your guns and hold them for you. Cause they're like, ah, guns yeah. dangerous. <laughs> like, I don't want that in my house. So that's a really great way because you know, there's going to be people that fall into that incidence where they they don't actually have someone to take them safely. And the last thing you want is a weapon being put somewhere just to protect yourself, but that can fall into yeah. the hands in a wrong way. Right. That would not be ideal. You touched on uh, brain health. And I think I'm going to, I want to talk to you a little, a little bit about mm-hmm. this because um, with, with, uh, CTE, TBIs, post-concussive syndrome, all of these things that we are seeing so many people come back with. My husband's actually going down to the resiliency brain center in Texas this week, mm. um, because of his uh, injuries to his head being a professional supercross racer. And I'm so excited because the progression in brain health has in the past 10 years alone has gone zero to 60 in a way that I have, I've, I was not aware until this week, how extensive it has got. And so I want you to tell me a little bit about what you've got going on, what you know about and how, and how you are integrating this into your, your teachings and your programming. Well, I, I mean, we don't teach on the, the brain health piece. We do send people to other places, but I, um, I got to, to, uh, moderate a panel at a big veterans event in Rhode Island about innovative treatments for post-traumatic stress and TBI. And um, there were these folks that I had on from uh, an outfit called Wave Neuro. And they work with a lot of soft veterans and athletes, professional athletes as well. And it basically, it's like brain waves, like your, your brain waves get out of whack and I am going to butcher this explanation. I was really I love artic- this so much. <laughs> I was really articulate talking about it on the panel. So people go listen to the panel because I, I was fully we'll researched. I was fully researched uh, when I did the panel. So it, I'm going to butcher this. And, and, and at the end, you'll have to put links to these people afterwards because I they promise. can you promise. Um, and it basically the wave brain, you know, the wavelength that your brain is operating on can become dissonant. And so, you know, there's this kind of lack of the proper rhythm and they can actually look at that and tell you who has uh, post-traumatic stress and TBI and other injuries like that. And then they use these, these machines that get your brain wavelengths back on track and it's having miraculous effects for a lot of people. And it really, you know, doing that panel, it gave me so much hope for, you know, magnetic impulses that they're using to treat people. Um, there, another person that I had on that panel was a guy named Rick Doblin from MAPS, which is doing MDMA. Um, basically, has just single-handedly pulled MDMA through the FDA process and is about to have it be a, you know, a, a, a treatment that is fully authorized by the federal government. Which is um, awesome. Which, I mean, it's, it, 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 and, and what's crazy is, and he says on this panel is, We're going to hold on one second because Casey just froze. That's so frustrating. Give it a minute. Oh, are you, you frozen? Are you? you froze, but you're back. You're okay. Good. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's it, a little not complicating. The, 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 you were the good. Zoom, the zoom, the zoom goblins are messing I'm, with us. Don't worry. This is so fixable. So you were talking about maps. And so they brought, they brought MDMA through the FDA process. Yeah. yeah and that's where and you they, clicked. 
Yeah. And then I click that, that 30 years ago, they saw that MDMA was literally healing people with post-traumatic stress. And he, he, you know, he said to me once, he said, um, you know, I just think about how many people we could have helped in the last 30 years if there hadn't have been this um, stigma around these kinds of treatments. And so, um, you know, the, the way the brain, I feel like in the next decade, especially, there is going to be a complete revolution in how we treat brain injury. And it's like, we don't even know what a brain injury is. You know, they, they used to think that you had to have um, a massive explosion to have a TBI. And now they're learning that even the small explosions that people experience in basic can create this cumulative effect that leads to a TBI. And so it's, um, it's, it's really unbelievable. I think what we're going to, we're going to one day look at what we have done in the last 20 years on these topics, you know, as many things in medicine is like, just, um, you know, uh, I think, I think, you know, we've so often been treating the symptoms and not the problem. And I think we are going to get in the next, you know, decade or two into where we are truly treating the actual problems that are leading folks to have quote unquote mental illness, right? There's, there is so much overlap between the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and TBI that it's almost like a random draw about what people get uh, diagnosed with. And yet that is defining their treatment and their ability to get help. And so it is so, um, it's so basic and, um, and really unsophisticated right now in a lot of ways that I think are going to, we're going to look back on in 10 years and, and wonder you know, about why we didn't move faster. So, yeah, the treatments that are available now that weren't even available 10 years ago are just, they're, like you said, they're mind blowing. I mean, I'm looking at things now where you know, you and I've had this discussion of psilocybin. I, I had a podcast yesterday with Theracil. They're the ones fighting for Canadians to have compassionate right under section 56 of the law to use psilocybin um, for treatments for, for like things like this and for end of life uh, compassionate therapy. And, you know, our government is, is they actually just blanket denied 150 uh, healthcare providers on this over. And now they have got seven days to respond before Theracil goes to court. Because it's mm. in our charter of rights to, to use things to to heal and, and we should have access. And the fact that, you know, MAPS has been able to get MDMA to the point of where it's gone in such a short turnaround time, like he stated, could you imagine the amount of people we'd be able to heal or could have healed in the past 30 years using these new modalities that are seen as either plant-based or, or a holistic approach or a psychedelic approach, whatever they want to be labeled as they're working and it's undeniable. And now that we have Harvard and Stanford and John Hopkins look at these things and really giving us research and giving us data points that are no longer just anecdotal or um, placebo, we've got people in a community really going, okay. These are the leading ways forward. We have to start utilizing them. And it's not that it's just blast waves. I mean, they're now finding evidence of, for example, the only reason I'm aware of this is because I was an artillery gunner. They're now finding that if you stood next to an artillery gun and there was a wall around you, the concussive blast that came off of those every single time a lanyard would pull is, is it's similar to hitting your head once. So it's hmm. like, can you imagine if you're doing that your entire career? I did only four years of that and I have 
so much wrong up there. So can you imagine if you did that for 20 years, Mm. if that was your job for 20, 25 years, it's, it's, it's no wonder people are being misdiagnosed with things like PTS instead of TBIs or instead of concussive injuries or blast wave. Like it's no wonder. And no wonder people are having such a hard time accessing treatments to it. All of these new amazing treatments are not cheap. They are difficult to obtain. They are often turned down when you're asking for permission. That's why so many of the veterans I know permission is not what they ask for any longer. It's forgiveness because Mm -hmm. people are no longer willing to live their lives or lose their lives because the government says X, Y, or Z, you can do this or you can't do this. So it's taking individuals like, like maps. It's taking individuals like you, it's taking individuals who are doctors that are willing to go against the college and say, we need to look at our mental health in a completely different way because it's, it's painfully obvious that this has not been done right for Vietnam, Korea, vets, World War II, vets, Afghan vets, Iraq vets. It's not working. Nothing we doing are, it, that we've been doing is working. And we need to change the way we think. We need to change the way we heal people. And it's okay if the mass public doesn't appreciate the way we're doing it. I don't care. Hmm. If my friends live, yeah. that's all that matters. I mean, I have to say, I feel, you know, there there is... Um, I mean, you look back and you feel so much heartbreak for what could have happened, but I also do feel tremendous amount of optimism right now about all these things that are coming online. And you talk about maps, they have just fought and fought and fought and fought and we just would not let it go. And that's, you know, where the hope lies. It's like people with tenacity and just force of will are going to bring these things to the fore. And so yeah, I, I, I feel a lot of optimism about where we're going to be in, you know, then even the next few years on these. Yeah. Um, I mean, one day I want to be out of a job. Like I want to, I, w- I want to no longer have this job because there are other problems to tackle. And I would love it if, if, you know, ulti- the ultimate goal is to have people not want to kill themselves. You know, what, what we, what I tell people is, you know, what we're talking about is like, you cannot get help people help if they die on the field, you know, you can, if you can, if you're in a situation and somebody gets hurt and you can't get them off the field into the hospital, you, you don't have that chance to heal them. And so what we're at is that, that crisis, like how do you prevent that worst case scenario so that people can go and get these other treatments? So one day I hope I'm out of a job. I hope maps and I hope wave Nero and all these outfits that are really taking it to the next level. One day we don't have this problem and, and we can get to the ne- that next level. I really believe we can get there. I honestly do. I I like, I'm like you said, there's, there's so many things in this world that could give us pause for, for negativity and, and that hopeless feeling, but I don't know that there is. I mean, when you're looking at specifically in the space that we're discussing and you're looking at brain care and health and the way that we treat individuals when it comes to gun safety and conversation, I'm super optimistic because I don't think anymore we are relying on the governments. I think that we are truly having people come from within the community who have said enough is enough. And the most beautiful thing about that is you and I and everyone else across the world have seen 
veterans get it done because we are relentless and we, we don't stop until we achieve what the mission like and the goal set is. And if that is for you to get people to no longer take their lives with guns that have access and it's to educate, I am sure it won't take long for you to make that apparent. It's no different than what Vet Solutions is doing in the legislation in Texas with so many different programs and Marcus and Amber. It's no different than what Jesse Gould is doing with Heroic Hearts Project. They are making the conversation happen, whether people want to have it or not. And again, it's taking these vets who are like, nope, we don't accept this any longer. We, we, we cannot accept this any longer. It's okay if it's not your priority. But guess what? It's our community's priority. It's our first responders. It's our veterans. It's our individuals who it's their God-given right just to even have a weapon in their home. It is those who have access to things that we should be having these conversations about. And I think it's more than okay to have these conversations. I think people who are willing or have a moment where they say, I need help. I need help. I need someone to come help me. I see those people. I see those people such in such a different light with that takes such strength, such courage, such integrity to be the person to ask for help. It's, it's a different thing. It is not a weakness any longer. It is a fucking superpower. If I've ever seen one in this day and age. I agree. Completely agree. And it's going to take all of us, yeah. you know, everywhere I go, you know, what is going to be your grain of sand? What are you going to do right now? Um, when you look around and everybody's got a lot to say about all the problems, it's like, well, where is this? What part of the solution are you? And then the other thing I would say, you know, every time I speak publicly is if there's anybody listening uh, to our trainings or our podcasts, don't lose hope. You know, so there's much. a lot of people who have been through all the treatments and they've done, you know, potentially a therapy that didn't work for them. And I'm telling you, there is hope. There is something else out there that can help you. And it, it is, it, it's hard to hear that it, it's good and it's bad, you know, because I think they're tired. They get tired. You constantly trying like who, you know, where is the hand that can help me get out of this? Um, because sometimes we can't do it on our own. And I just, you know, I always tell people there is help out there. There are things coming online that you could access right now. MDMA, there is a VA trial right now that people can sign up for. At least, at least there was a year ago. I I'm saying that, but it, there is a, there are trials around the country where you can participate in this therapy right now. Um, you know, these brainwave outfits, I, there are actually VA treatment centers that are offering some of these treatments. So it's, it's there for you. It's just hard to like kind of decipher it. And I, I think there's some really great work getting done um, in the veteran space where people are trying to create funnels where people don't have to figure out by themselves um, right. where there's kind of like these central outfits that somebody comes in and says, this is what's happening to me. And how do I get out of this problem? How do I solve it? And they kind of point them in a warm handoff to where they can go. And right, so right. that it is overwhelming. There's like something like 50,000. I'm, I'm going to blow this uh, or maybe 25, but there's, there's tens of thousands of veteran service nonprofits. And so it's sometimes it's hard. hard. There's, it's hard to know which one to go through, which one's legitimate, which one is going to be the best use of my time. Um, but there are, you know, places that uh, provide this. I mean, there, 
there are amazing organizations out there. There's an organization that um, that I have uh, been talking to recently um, called Stop Soldier Suicide. And they, um, I highly recommend them. They work with people remotely all over the country. And they have this whole process where they kind of create a team around someone who's struggling to really solve the specific problems that that veteran is ha having. It's not like a one size fit all, fits all um solution, which I think is where we need to go. Um, like, okay, this, this particular path works for one person, but not the other. And then it makes it less overwhelming because when you are in crisis or you're struggling, it's really hard to make good decisions about things that are this complicated. And it is. And I mean, we saw it after what I went on a couple podcasts, the outpouring that we got of people asking, how do I go do this treatment? Where is it accessible? I'm in this town. I need this help. I need, it was it was insane because that was something I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready to handle. And what I did realize around that though, was that there needs to be some type of central database that is not within, not, I'm not talking veterans affairs, obviously that is a central database, but there needs to be a central database <clears throat> in my opinion, that shows every nonprofit in those towns, what that nonprofit does. And then a phone number and email for every single one of them. I need that. That's what I need because that's how much outpouring and, and people wanting to know where do they go to access this. I, I've mentioned this before on shows. I feel like it's it's going to take people within the community to create a program like that. And that's a heavy lift. But I think if, if there's accessibility and you can point to, okay, this, we're going to try this with you. We're going to try this with you. You're over here. We have a central database where we can give people some answers because like you said, when you're unwell, and I've been there, you are not thinking clearly. You're not thinking of, of next the next day. You're not mm -hmm. thinking of how do I get this resource and contact this person? What if they don't answer that day? What if, what if you just get a voicemail? Then what happens? Who do you mm -hmm. call next? So I think there needs to be steps in place. And I really do think it's getting there. But this stop su um, soldier suicide, you and I need to have a chat about after because that sounds like something I need mm. to have as a resource here because this is an ongoing issue where people are genuinely curious about these new types of healing modalities. And it could be because they've run through the VA system. They've done traditional talk therapy. They've done the medication route, but they don't know where to turn. And they're really mm. leaning on podcasts to hear them. They're leaning mm. on other people's stories when you're doing these events to hear these resources. And I think that, you know, more and more of this conversation needs to be had, but it seems like you have absolutely no issue picking and pulling this apart. And I think it's incredible. I think that you need to be, you need to be talking about more than just what you're doing. I think you have so much knowledge outside of just the program you're running. I don't know how much more we can spread you thin, but I, I feel like <laughs> you're going to just have to come on here regularly so that we can, we can get all of the new data. We can get all of the new information because it's a constant moving, ebbing and flowing mm -hmm. Um, of brain health, of, of suicide prevention, of veterans awareness, of mental health. And I mm -hmm. think these conversations just need to be just daily conversations over coffee. How you doing? Doing good? Not so good? Let's have a conversation about that. I think right. it's okay to talk and just fucking ask someone. Just it's not hard. Ask. Just fucking ask. I tell people I do it for a living. I'm always just fucking ask people for everything. Like you just fucking ask about suicide. Like I, you know, I, I, you know, when you, everybody looks at our website, like we've got all this beautiful creative, you know, we so really, great. we it are really trying is. to bring, I tell people what we're trying to bring is principles of great marketing 
to suicide prevention, you know, because public health tends to be kind of, you know, very straight. Um, and so we brought on one of the top advertising agencies to build that platform. We had a director who did our PSA, who, um, works with Travelocity and Universal and, you know, does all these huge commercials. Uh, that this, that's the PSA at the top of the website. It's called The War on Suicide. It's this, it's, so it's a work of art. Like I, you know, that I need to do a behind the scenes on how we did that. Cause people who look at that and they don't think it's our footage. They think it's like some stock that somebody gave to us that I'm telling you, because it's, it's, it, that's a half a million dollar piece. Like that's crazy. It's crazy. It would be half a million dollars. That director is like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. His name is Klaus Obermeier, Obermeier. And he came to me and we were talking, I mean, he's got veterans in his, his family and actually did a lot of work doing the Marine recruiting uh, commercials for years, like some very iconic pieces for the Marines, just a genius, an absolute genius and a beautiful soul. And, um, you know, the agency brought him in and we sat down and we had this intense, to use that word, conversation where it was this hour and a half of just like in the deep end of talking about this mission and why we do it and why it works. And at the end of it, he put his entire production company at our disposal. And he came to me and he showed me this Nike ad of this slow-mo, you know, kind of sports scene. And he was like, what do you think about this? And I was just that's awesome. And, and so we had about a hundred people working on that piece. Um, when you talk about the writers and the cinematographers and the production guy, you know, team, we, um, had the pyrotechnics crew, some of them worked on the Hurt Locker. We had a $5 million set, uh, that's used for holiday, holiday movies. I mean, Holly holiday, holiday you know Christmas holiday movies no it was uh uh Hollywood movies I mean it was just epic I remember looking around and this was right after we'd come out of the pilot we were standing up this national you know platform that you see there and I was just like holy shit like this is crazy this is so crazy all the actors and their veterans one of them one of them is a navy corpsman um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just watching this happen. There's this like slow-mo scene through this battle scene. And it's meant to be this poetic look at like the war on suicide, the battle when you come home. Um, and so that's epic, like, you know, but what I did there, I just fucking asked, like, I have no problem asking insanely talented people to bring their talent and skills to this cause. That's one of my superpowers <laughs> as a nonprofit executive. Yeah. But that's what you need. And that's what it takes to get it done. You need somebody that's not going to sit back and be afraid to have a conversation. Like, I mean, you and I got, got chatting and, and I knew right away we were going to hit it off because yeah. like you said, you've been told you're intense. You've been told that's a word that's described, but I mean, I don't find you that intense. I find <laughs> you really normal. I, I It's funny. Cause I had this conversation with my husband the other day. We were, we were watching this show on Netflix. It's called Okay, bear with me. All right. It's called Too Hot to Handle. Let me explain. <laughs> I, I'm familiar with it. Okay. So you know what I'm saying when it's about emotional growth and it starts off as this like bullshit, right? Yeah. But it's, I, I find that fascinating. But what's really interesting is we watched the Brazil one and that one you got to read subtitles for. But what I realized, we were sitting there and I do like we do some stretching before bed when we're just kind of getting ready. We're just 
watching TV or whatever. And uh, <laughs> couples who stretch together, stay together. Is that yeah, the, something yeah. like that? It's definitely something Somebody like that. Somebody listening to this right now is going to take this in a different direction, but then, then I, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're damn right. They are. I hope they do. Um, so we're watching it. And what I realized is they, these people from Brazil were having normal, con- like just just normal conversation. But what it looked like was this. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a totally different vibe. And I, I stopped and my eyes got about this big. And I looked at the TV and I said, those are my people. I fit in there. I fit I fit in. I fit in there. That intensity, that that vibration, that that the hand gestures, that's just who I am. And that's a lot for people, especially my kids' principle, but it is, it is not a lot for other people. It's not you, you, you make me feel comfortable. You make me feel normal. You make me feel like I'm not the only one out there relentlessly screaming about people dying and the way you do it. I respect the hell out of, so you're not intense. Not even a little bit. Not a little bit. Well, let's talk about intensity, lady. I, you know, you told me about that event that you're doing. Oh, the, yeah. The four oh, the by, one in March. Four by 48. Like, you told me you're going to be in Dallas for this, this veterans organization event. And I'm super nonchalant about it. I, I mean, I'm going to, you're going to happen to be there. And I was like, oh, I'll come by and, you know, to say hi. And then I looked it up and I was, I was like, she's not going to be hanging out. She's going to be running. Yeah, but we stop. No, you have to come. You have to come. Let me tell you why. So we're bringing my social girl. We've got um, another individual, another girl. I call her a girl because it's weird. Another woman because I'm a grown woman now. Get it together. Um, Another female. It's a habit that is hard to break. Isn't it I got to say female. It's very. uh, It feels weird. female male you know it feels very anatomical but i know so another another same sex individual of female variety (laughs) is going to be doing this with me she's a board member of soa and she was a warrant officer in special operations her name's jack well jacqueline but i call her jack because i guess everyone does but also my son is jack so it's just easier she's going to be running it with me and she goes yeah i'm not running that i'm rucking that like uh my knees won't do that and i'm like i'll run it because i don't know if i could ruck it because your legs are half the size of my body i wouldn't be able to keep up i have to light jog just to keep up to you so the whole thing is i got you know fortunately i i think i don't know if i told you so i, I met jesse gould through who um at heroic hearts project through a friend griff who Jesse Gould, I got to know after um, doing ayahuasca with the charity and um, it really had such a massive impact on me. I basically said to Jesse, like, I'm at your disposal for Mm -hmm. anything for the rest of my life. What what can I do to help you always, always? And um, I truly feel that way, though. I really do. And so next thing you know, I get this random email and Jesse, because he does this, I guess he connected me with Andrew Marr who runs with his brother runs, um, the warrior angels foundation in Texas. And they, they promote brain health and all of these things with Dr. Mark Gordon and the millennium, um, protocol and those things. And I've been on that protocol because I heard about, I heard them speak on Joe Rogan. My husband and I both suffer from lots of head hits, like way too many to count. Cause I can't count. And, um, they literally just, I just got an email with the guy and I was like, okay. So we get on the phone go on one vacation, like in the past, like, I don't know how many years. And he goes, can I call you then? And I'm like, call me. I don't care. So I'm standing on the beach in Hawaii and he goes, Hey, so we're doing this thing. I think you're cool. 
Would you want to come do it? It might be last minute. You might not be able to do it. I said, what is it? He goes, well, it's this, this fitness thing. It's four miles every four hours for 48 hours. David Goggins started it. And it, every it's the third, oh, I think third or fourth. That, yeah, that, so that is so on brand. Like, right? I'm, I'm so, I'm like, oh, now it all makes sense. Yes. So the yeah, David, David Goggins started. It. Yes. Yes, David Goggins started this. There we this. go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then people have adopted this as as ways to fundraise and events and do these things. And so my buddy and I, who's an ex Royal Marine, we do the twenty four hour rowathon. We do that on November eleventh every year. And so we set up shop with a bunch of rowing machines and we start rowing from six a.m. to six a.m. And we do it with firefighters, first responders, and we raise funds. And that's that's what we did the beer for. Like we did it with a partnership, and then we launched the event there. So we do a fit type thing. And then he was like, you want to come run four miles every four hours for 48 hours? And I was like, sure. Awesome. Sure. I mean, why not? And he goes, do you got to get ready? And I said, not if you stay ready. And that was all it took. And he was like, oh, fuck yeah, let's go. <laughs> I was like, so, so you just, you just crash out and like you're running yeah. gear. And yes. Yeah. And it's a whole thing for two days. So we're flying in on the Thursday. Um, it starts on Friday at 2 PM. That's the first four miles. And what I'm going to do is I'm podcasting in between these runs. Oh my God. You're going to be so delirious by the end of it. It's going to get really interesting on the back end. Don't tell me those aren't going to be the best podcasts They're I've ever be the put best out. Podcasts. It's like, what's, so, what's the ones where it's like a something in a beer and a whatever. And yeah, yeah. it's, going to get real. Are you going to be interviewing other people who are on the back end of that experience? Yeah. Do you actually think that I'm just going to sit there and talk to myself? I mean, by the last one, I might be thinking I'm interviewing someone and be so delirious. I'm talking directly to myself. Oh my God. This is going to be a whole thing. You need to, somebody needs to be posting like the progression clips on. Why do you think my social media manager is coming? (laughs) Because I, I'm not going to be doing that. That's, that requires so much more effort than I'm going to have for that. So the plan is we go, we run, um, we've got the sleeping bags. We'll pass out by the fire at night. We'll sleep every, every, you know, the little chunks, hammer out the run, come back, eat, stretch, do the thing, sleep for a little bit up and do it again. And it's, I mean, listen, it's not that bad. We used to do this on, on anytime we had to do OP stuff when we were doing workup training for overseas. I mean, it's, you would, you would sleep for four hours, stretch. You'd be on OP for four hours, stretch. You would sleep for four hours, stretch. And then you would, it's just the way. So right. I know it's doable. I haven't done it in a minute, but I know it's doable. Last year I did a, a buddy of mine was doing a training run. He was doing a hundred kilometer run for charity. And, um, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do a 50 K training run. Do you want to run it with me? We're going to run from the border, which we live on right by Washington here in Vancouver. We're going to run to the YVR airport. I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. I haven't, let me make that very clear. I hadn't done a half marathon. I hadn't even done a marathon. I've never done a marathon, which is like what 46 kilometers or something. I hadn't even done a half marathon since before like two years after I had my son. So my son's almost six now. So it was a minute. So that weekend, like two weekends before, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to just go for a long run and see how, see how the old, the old knee surgeries are holding up the shoulder surgery. Let's just go see what this body can still do. So I think I cranked out just, I think it was like 17 or 18 clicks. And I was like, okay, that's not bad. Let's see how I feel the next day. And I was like, oh, I'm a little rough. I'm a little rough. So I had two weeks and then I, we off the couch that we did it. Uh, I think it was seven, seven hours. Um, and we did a 50, we did the 50 K and uh-huh. by the end of it though, my, because it was 50 K almost, almost straight. So by the end of it, my, it felt like my, my, um, hip bones were broken. Like it, that was a, they were crunching in a weird way. I didn't like, so I figure as long as I, as long as I can go do some good amount of training runs on the lead up to this and just stretch it out 
you know, do the, look after the body, the mind can turn off, right? That's the thing I can do. That's, I can turn it off. I'll shut it down. It'll shut down. Now I got to shut, I got to turn it back on though for the podcast. So that's, <laughs> this is where the fun part will happen. This is why I really believe you should be there because there is going to be some great individuals for you to meet and network and talk about this amazing cause and what you're doing in your nonprofit. And plus you get to hang out with delirious this. It's hilarious. I mean, I'll be game to come. Honestly, I, I when I looked at it, I was like, she's not going to have time to. Yes, I have know. all the time. Okay, 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 okay. I look, I'm supposed to be there uh, in. So what is the schedule? So it starts on Thursday, which is what it starts day on the- Friday. It starts on Friday at 2 p.m. So we're all kind of getting there Friday morning and we get over to the ranch where um, which is Andrew Mars Ranch. And it is the Warrior Angels Foundation. And it is going to be done on behalf of um, Vet Solutions, Heroic Hearts Project, SOA, Fit Top. And I think there's one other one, but it's in conjunction with Brass and Unity, them. And I think there's nine line, I think nine line apparel, one of the other organizations. But so it's all these people coming. There's generals coming. There's Congress members coming. There's other vets and special ops coming and Certain amount of us are running and rocking this. I don't know how many actual people are hurting themselves. I think there's a good amount of us, but um, you know, you need to show. Come show. I, I look. I am. I'm gonna try and be. The, I. I. I think that Friday. Friday the. Is it Friday the fourth? Yeah. Friday the fourth. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm supposed to come back to Miami on Friday night, but anyway, we will, we will talk. I, 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 the, the schedule is like up in the air, I'm, but I'm definitely supposed to be in Dallas during that day. But, uh, so you are going to run, you run four uh-huh. hours, you sleep. So why start at 2 PM? I guess so I, is- it goes. So the way the schedule goes is I think the first run takes off. So you got to run four miles, however long that takes you. And then you've got a four hour gap in between the next run. And I think the way it spaces out time-wise it ends at a certain time on the Sunday. And then there's a party, like a charitable, like at the end of it, a big event on the Sunday night. And then everyone can, I think, leaves in the Monday morning or leaves that that evening. And so that the way they timed it out, it ends up being 12 runs of, of four miles each to equal to 48 um, miles, which is in Canadian, it's like 60 or 70 kilometers, something ridiculous. I say in Canadian, I, know, like, I, I, I see those things and I'm so impressed by them. And it, it's, it's, it's just, I, oh, you know, all the people who do that, are kind of extreme athlete. Uh, it's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing to me. Well, yeah. it's all I got, right? Listen, there's, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I've never claimed to be, to be a, a seven tour soldier or a 25 year veteran or, um, you know, I'm not a Navy SEAL or special ops. I know what I did on my deployment. I'm proud of what I did for the, the time frame that I did it for. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more than, I'm more than what my past was when I was 19. I'm not a, I'm not a soldier any longer. Now I'm, I'm an advocate and I, and I care about my community and I, and I approach things differently. And if I know there's a couple things I can do effectively, I can hurt you with my words and my knife hand, number one. <laughs> And I, I can run and I'm, I can do physical things. So I know if I have some type of tool at my disposal, I need to be using it for, for, for the right reasons. I need to be using it on behalf of other people. I'm fortunate that I have two legs to still walk on and two arms. I'm lucky. I still have all my limbs after my deployment. My mind went for a while, but guess what? 
Oh, I'm back, bitch. Oh, and I'm back in a big way. And so I'm going to use every tool at my disposal. And if that means people say, Kelsey, do you want to go climb something or do this or shoot this or run this many or whatever? And if it means that I can help more people to heal and get to the point that I've been able to get to with the support system I've had, mm. I'll hurt myself for a few days. I can do yeah. that. You can do that. Well, I, I, I think it's brilliant. And I think that it's, it sounds like a great event. So I'm, I'm going to see what I can do. To, I'm going to send you everything. I'm going to send, send it all to me, but yes, yeah. I was, I was thoroughly uh, blown away. <laughs> well, it's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to run in your shirt and get it all sweaty and disgusting. And I know we had talked about this before, but you know, when people start purchasing, when they purchase their brass and you need a product, we're going to have one of your cards in there soon too. Oh, Cause yes. we want everyone to know exactly who you are and how that they can just, they can just fucking ask their friends. Yes. Hey, how you doing homie? Absolutely. Yeah. There's an amazing conversation guide on the website for anybody who's wondering how to go there. We've got a short one and a long one. And so it really just breaks it all down with actual, like, this is how you could say it. You know, I think that people sometimes get hung up. Am I going to say it right? Am I going to do it right? Um, and there's a really great film on the website by, with a veteran named Jay who has done this and he's got this story um, where, you know, his dad was a Vietnam veteran who lost his first wife to suicide. And then Jay came back. Um, he was an army medic and had seen just all sorts of terrible things, uh, you know, as that goes. And, um, and then he lost his best friend to suicide, his best buddy in his unit. And, um, it just set him on the spiral where he had picked a day, you know, he was like, I'm done. And his dad saw it. And his dad was like, you know what? I can't, I lost my first wife to suicide. I can't lose my son. And so they have this deal where if he's struggling, um, his dad would come take his firearms temporarily, a lot of trust there. And then he would give them back as soon as he was better. Um, but Jay does this for other people now. Other, they have, he has this group of veterans and they all do it for each other. And he said, you know, it's an awkward conversation every time you have it. You know, you just got to get over that. But if it's, he said, you know, the first time I had it with a friend, I said, you know, you may get pissed off at me for asking this, but I would rather you be angry and alive than happy with me and dead. Right. And that is, those are the stakes. Those are the stakes sometimes about like, when you're sitting there wondering, should I ask this question? Should I go there? Should I talk about this? It's like, you'd rather I'm angry and alive than happy with you and dead. So that's True. what. I'd yeah. rather, I'd rather not sit there at your funeral and say, I wish I would have. Yeah. I'd rather listen to your story than go to your funeral. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. My God. You're so much better with words than I am. <laughs> Damn it. It's a journalist. A, I, that is not true, but, um, I had, I've had a lot of practice, <laughs> you know, my goodness, that was my goodness. thing. Yeah. Words are my thing. That's okay. Words matter. Like you said, and it's yeah. important that we use them and we use them we use them in the right way and we use them yeah. to affect positive change and to help heal people. And I think that's what you're going to continue to do. So tell everybody where they can find you, find the organizations and yeah. what the website is, and then we'll link you all to it. Perfect. Uh, the website is overwatchproject.org. Um, our social is at overwatchproj, overwatch and then P-R-O-J. Um, got a lot of cool stuff up there um, that people please share it. We literally have had people who say that, um, you know, there's a story that I tell uh, where we got a text from somebody that said that somebody was sitting in the woods with a gun in his hand and a friend had shared one of our videos and he was just, he was kind of stalling 
because he was uncertain if he wanted to do it, saw one of our videos and decided to walk out of the woods. So you never know if that thing you share or send or put out there is going to be the difference, that random difference between life and death for someone. So get it out there, push it out there. You know, there's ways to get in touch with us um, on the website. And then, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of new things this year. We're going to do some new PSAs and content pieces that are going to be really cool and exciting. So well, look we'll forward to hearing from your audience. Oh, and you will. And we will make sure that we push it out. We'll have everyone push it out. We'll put it on our mental health Mondays. We'll have you on the week your episode comes out and you can come chat live with us as well. Okay. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, guys, I, I hope that you learned something. I hope that you, you can feel not only the passion, but the severity of this issue. And I hope that you guys all reach out and um, never be afraid to just fucking ask. Otherwise, we will see you all next week. You stay with me.